Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to a study on the Mikra e Kodesh, the Holy Convocations. I'm the author, uh, Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi, and this particular study we will look at a minor feast. Actually, it is the festival of Hanukkah, or the festival of dedication, as the name Hanukkah actually means. All quotations will be taken from the complete Jewish Bible. Translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. This particular written commentary was updated on December 25th of 2005. Yes, I was working on Christmas. I'd like to start with an opening verse from the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 15 out of the KJV reads, quote, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That will become my theme verse as I work my way through the festivals, uh, the, both the major feasts and the minor feasts. The difference between the two being that the major feasts are found in Leviticus chapter 23 and they are commanded by God. They have been recorded for us by Moshe. Therefore, um, they are not uh, open to, I should say, uh, discussion as to whether we should or should not keep them. Israel was commanded to keep all of the major feasts. However, the minor ones um, have found their way into Israel's history. Uh, they would include Hanukkah, Purim, um, and some of the other festivities that are associated with Israel's history. And um, personally, I don't see anything wrong with keeping such feasts, but I shall. Uh, make a distinction between those which are commanded in the Torah and those which are simply uh, recorded for us by history. So hopefully you will not um, be discouraged from doing and following these feasts as well. If you find value in them, then I recommend that you participate. Um, that being said, let's go ahead and get into the study. The Hebrew word Chanukah uh, literally means dedication, and as such, it is where the minor holiday gets its name. In fact, many people aren't aware that Hanukkah, the word itself, is found in the Bible. You can do a word search through your Strong's Concordance and find the word Hanukkah showing up quite a few places, particularly in relation to, say, the dedication of the temple. That's where the word Hanukkah shows up quite often. However, it doesn't always mean that it's referring to the holiday known as Hanukkah. Um... The festival, as I mentioned, is not one of the seven listed in Leviticus 23, but in its original concept, the festival itself, it is free from pagan trappings, which um, makes it a bonus. <laughs> the familiar candlestick that so many of you are used to seeing around Hanukkah uh, is known as a Hanukkiah, 
and um, it has two extra lamps uh, when compared to the regular menorah. So that's how you can tell the difference between the two. A Hanukkah has nine, and the menorah has seven. Now, throughout this study, um, I just want to say up front, I don't claim to be an historian. Uh, and the story of how Hanukkah came to be is somewhat familiar to most folks anyway. So I want to avoid retelling the entire story, and instead shift my teaching to focus on the meaning of dedication, the meaning of the word Hanukkah. And I believe just a small background briefer is necessary so that we can at least get a running start. So I don't want to spend too much time on the on the background, but let me just do a little bit for you, okay? This particular section is entitled History Lesson. During the few hundred years prior to the Common Era, the Hellenistic Greek armies, that is, of Alexander marched throughout the Middle East in a conquest to control the civilized world. And, for the most part, they were successful, as their rule spanned approximately uh, 330 BCE, that is, before the Common Era, until they were finally defeated themselves by a stronger and more militant army known as the Romans in 63 BCE. And it was during this time period that the land of Palestine, uh, really the, the land is called Israel, but the history books for some reason refer to it as Palestine from time to time. This particular uh, piece of real estate was caught up in the middle of these intense power struggles. The Hellenistic armies were led by a prominent general by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, and he sought to eliminate all traces of alien culture, that is to say anything that was alien to Hellenism. And he did this by fierce methods of assimilation. That was his... Um, his, his, how should you say, his uh, plan of attack. Uh, he would um, capture people, subjugate them, and assimilate them to his own culture. That is to say, he would um, uh, assume th that they would uh, give in to his influence and take on Greek culture as their own, thus forsaking any original um, indigenous culture that they may have possessed before he showed up. So his armies enforced you know, as far as Israel is concerned, his armies enforced a strict anti-Torah policy. And particularly the forbidding of circumcision in public and private Torah reading was on the top of the list as far as what he forbade. As could be expected, the Judeans resisted and conflicts with the Hellenists were frequent during this time period. As it came to pass, Antiochus eventually seized complete control of the temple itself and history records that in a public display of triumph and mockery, he decided to sacrifice a swine upon the altar itself, a pig, which we all know from reading the Torah is an unclean animal. And so he poured swine urine on the temple furniture and the holy things. Such a disgusting um, display it was. He also enforced the strict Hellenization of um, Israel by setting up a gymnasium in, in uh, Jerusalem. And he compelled the Jews to attend. Now, when I say gymnasium, it's not to be uh, uh, understood as the gymnasium as we would have today. Rather, this was a place where the um, Greek peoples uh, participated in, in competition. Kind of like the, um, uh, how do we say, the Olympic Games today. But um, a noticeable difference between today's games and back then was that the Greeks... Um, how shall I say, they competed in the nude because the uh, human body was thought to be one of the greatest works of art ever to have been discovered. And so, at any rate, this gymnasium in, in Yerushalayim was uh, set up 
and it became a place of, of uh, abhorrence for the Jewish people. Eventually, the proverbial straw broke the camel's back, and a small resistance led by the Maccabean family uh, of the Hasmonean dynasty, uh, Maccabees, uh, the Maccabean family, um, Judas Maccabeus, or and or Mattathias in this family, uh, a priestly family, I might add, they began to fight back against this Hellenistic control. So what happened was when the temple was eventually recaptured by the Judeans, uh, it turned out that it was in shambles. I mean, you can imagine the priests were run off. The uh, temple cult was um, not allowed to maintenance the temple things, and so it was uh, it was horrible. Apart from being ritualistically defiled by Antiochus' armies, it was in a horrific state of disuse. In fact, it was three whole years that Antiochus had occupied the temple. Um, the temple priests, as I mentioned, were forbidden to per perform their proper duties. Therefore, as you can imagine, it would take quite a bit of work to repair the once beautiful structure. It was decided that before any reconstruction and repair could commence, as the Torah has given us the um, uh, paradigm to do so, the house itself had to be rededicated back to Hashem. Now, this was an act to signify that the Judeans wanted the holiness of the Holy One to return to his temple. So, they set out to accomplish this task, but when it came time to rekindle the menorah, that is that the seven-branched lampstand that resided in the temple, they discovered that the olive oil supply had been depleted. Now, it usually took up to eight days to manufacture enough oil to keep the lamp properly lit. According to tradition, however, Miraculously, they discovered one cruise or one container of oil with enough supply to light just one single lamp. Um, think of it like one candle of the seven candles uh, to help compare today. Although they weren't burning candles, it was really oil. And according to the uh, um, tradition, uh, the miraculous took place when upon lighting the menorah during the rededication ceremony, instead of it only lasting a few hours like they anticipated, it lasted for the duration of the eight days that it took to produce more oil. Amazing, huh? Uh, the Judeans interpreted this as a supernatural sign that the Holy One, blessed be He, was well pleased that they had defeated the Greek armies for now and that he was ready to, quote-unquote, move back into his home. That is to say, take up residency among the people so that he could dwell among them. Now... After listening to the story, you're probably shaking your head in incredibility. Uh, you're probably thinking that's incredible. And, and really, whether or not all the elements of the story uh, are factual or not, history does, in fact, record that the temple was rededicated unto God after the defeat of Antiochus Epiphanes IV by the family known as the Maccabees. So that part of history is accurate. In fact, the story is somewhat recorded for us in the apocryphal books known as the Maccabees, which are found in a Bible containing what we call the Deuterocanonicals, um, usually a Catholic version. I think the Jerusalem Bible has the uh, stories of the Maccabees in there. So, because the festival of Hanukkah originated from a remembrance of this historic occasion, we, in fact, have it recorded in our New Testament, in the New Covenant book, of John chapter 10, verse 22. So, um, the story took place, all the details, as I mentioned, are, are questionable as to which ones are fact and which ones are simply uh, fiction. At any rate, it's an inspiring story, and the, uh, um, the inspiration uh, that is gained from the story 
carries down to our day. This next section is entitled Kedusha, which is a Hebrew term that means holiness. As I study the festival of Hanukkah and the um, the battles that the Maccabeans faced and the uh, world that was dominated by the Hellenists and the Judeans and the conflicts that they faced with one another, I'm left with some uh, some um, some stark realities as I look back into the pages of history. And in my opinion, Hanukkah itself is really about holiness. That's the theme that seems to rise to the top as I study this festival. It has been stated that holiness itself is not metaphysical. Our concept of holiness does not define what is holy. In fact, only the Holy One Himself can fully define, as well as embody, holiness. To be sure, the phrase, I am Adonai, or its equivalent, I am Adonai your God, appears 16 times in Leviticus chapter 19 alone. Chapter 20 sees another four uses of these phrases. Therefore, just using the raw data that we gain from that book, the lesson is obvious. Adonai alone defines holiness among men. Only he has the power and the authority to set the standard of holiness. For he alone is the fullness of holiness. For he alone is Adonai. So, what happens when humanity meets holiness? You know, as we interact with our loving Father, we find out that Hashem is intimately interested in our redemption. Likewise, He is our deliverer from the unholy. And that's why, I believe, He masterfully planned for one man to become the perfect embodiment and display of our Father's holiness. In fact, only this man would be able to showcase the fullness of the holiness of God to such a degree that to look at this man was to look at God. Only this man would be able to perfectly imitate God, for only this man was and is perfectly God. Yeshua is his name, and he sets the standard. Because of our new life in Messiah as believers, we have inherited the holiness that Hashem intended for us to possess all along. In fact, when we place our trusting faithfulness in the perfect man of God, our holiness, or the lack thereof, becomes the holiness of the Father. Our constitution changes, and we are no longer deemed unholy for his riches and glory, which includes his holy standard of being, are transferred to our account. Isn't that wonderful? People, listen. We must grasp this central truth and begin to live according to to it. We are holy because Yeshua has made us holy. In fact, I'm reminded of the example given to us in the Torah. Rav Shaul, Apostle Paul, uses this man as an example over and over again. Abraham, our father. And you know, as I read through the pages of his um, life, I'm reminded that just as unrighteous Avraham became righteous when he placed his complete faith in Hashem, so we too, we believers in Yeshua, inherit the righteousness and the holiness of the Holy One when we place our unreserved trust in His Son. But holiness is also a duty. What do I mean? 
Holiness is, in fact, imparted. It's imputed. It's given to us free via the Son's sacrifice. But there's something else that we must do as citizens of God's kingdom. We are not simply expected, once we inherit holiness, to simply lead our lives the way that we've currently been leading or formerly been leading them before we came to Messiah. No. There is a sacrifice of ourselves. There's a death of the old man and a birthing of a new man. Therefore, there is something that we are expected to do. This next section is entitled, Walking in Kedusha. Apart from being an attribute of God, one that we inherit intrinsically with our trusting faithfulness in the Messiah, I believe that holiness is also meant to be a lifestyle. This is why I keep using the phrase trusting faithfulness rather than simply the term faith. And let me draw a comparison between the two, trusting faithfulness and faith. I'm influenced by David Stern's translation of the Bible, the Complete Jewish Bible, and his commentary which uses these phrases, trusting faithfulness. In my studies, or my understanding of this phrase, the latter, that is faith, implies a one-time action on our part which forever sets into motion a spiritual truth that will be fully actualized at the return of our Lord. Did I lose anyone? Notice the candor of the phrase, okay? Quote, I place my trust in Yeshua, or I have faith in Jesus. With our Western worldview, it seems to be a static statement. I place my faith in Yeshua, something that happened in the past. In fact, by comparison, the former phrase, trusting faithfulness, when I'm comparing the two, the former seems to carry the aspect of a daily motion which, in my opinion, permeates every movement of our new creation lives. So listen to this phrase, all right? Listen, notice the candor now. Rather than saying, I simply place my faith in Yeshua, what if I were to say, I place my trusting faithfulness in Yeshua? Do you notice the subtle difference? To live by trusting faithfulness rather than just by faith alone characterizes our moment-by-moment thought process as well as our actions. The former, again, trusting faithfulness, carries our faith into action. It's not just static. In other words, this new life in Messiah is an ever-constant, ever-growing relationship with the Holy One of Israel. A demonstration of the miraculous on a level that can and should be measured in even the smallest areas of our lives, I believe. Trusting faithfulness, what I'm trying to say, is ongoing. Don't just say you placed your trust and faith in Yeshua. Don't just say, I placed my faith in Yeshua 15 years ago. And yet you're not living according to that faith. Your faith should be ongoing. That's why I'm using the phrase, trusting faithfulness. It seems to carry the uh, aspect of something that continues. It's not some unmoving, monumental event which took place sometime in our lives in the past. I mean, I'm not trying to negate the moment of salvation in our lives, but rather... Faith is a lifestyle. It's something that that overtakes our lives for the rest of our lives. Something which was enacted when we first had a genuine encounter with the divine holiness. Holiness implies dedication and set-apartness. There's our Hebrew word again, chanukah, dedication. It means to be set apart. It means to be sanctified. However, the Hebrew term dedication 
really has two aspects to it. To dedicate something is to consecrate it for a set-apart function. Uh, to be set apart unto Hashem is the fullest meaning of the word dedication, if I might add. But along with the word Chanukah, which means dedication, we have the familiar word Kadosh, which means holy. So I'm going to play off these two terms, dedication and uh, set-apartness. This second term, kadosh, or holy, it also conveys the sense of something being separated from the ordinary, separated unto the holy, I may add. You see, if something is not set aside unto the holy, then it's not properly set aside by God's view. One more word that will help to clarify these concepts is the Hebrew word shuv, um, meaning to return. In fact, we get the Hebrew word teshuvah, meaning repentance from this word shuv. It literally means to turn the back um, or, or to turn around. Um, Torah true repentance involves turning from that which is unrighteous and returning to that which is righteous. That's true repentance. That's true teshuvah. And like Chanukah and Kadosh, teshuvah implies both functions, turning away from that which is profane and turning unto that which is holy. So, let's make our correlation to the temple uh, that we mentioned in the Hanukkah story. If you will recall, the temple represented the seat of Hashem's dwelling with mankind. It was here that the Aron HaKodesh, which is the Hebrew phrase Ark of the Covenant, I mean the English equivalent is Ark of the Covenant, this is where it dwelt. It dwelt in the Holy of Holies, the Kadosh Kadoshim. It was in the temple that the Shekhinah, which is the Hebrew phrase meaning the manifested glory of God, resided. And so it's only understandable that if this place was profaned, that God would not wish to dwell here among his people. Therefore, it was necessary to consider this place holy unto God and separated for a specific purpose. And what was that purpose? So that God may dwell among them. Batocham, as it says in Exodus chapter 25 in Parashat, um, what is it? Parashat uh, Teruma. In fact, when the temple became defiled with pagan influences and pagan rituals, naturally it had to be rededicated in order to be considered clean, if you might add. The apostolic scriptures indicate that as believers in Messiah Yeshua, our bodies are now, that is to say since the second temple has been removed, our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit of Hashem. The Ruach HaKodesh in Hebrew is the Holy Spirit. We, you and I, have become his dwelling place on earth today. He's no longer dwelling among us in a man-made temple as his dwelling place we need to keep his temple cleansed. Our bodies are his temple. So, if we need to keep it clean, you might ask yourself, well, how does it become defiled? I really shouldn't even have to ask the question, right? Let's talk about it, though. Realistically, even as believers, we are plagued with the old man. The sin housed up with inside us, with, uh, within us, I should say, um, taunts us, teases us, tempts us. Uh to fall back to familiar habits and patterns of the flesh, uh, jealousy, anger, rage, uh, these types of things and the like uh, are, are that which the believer wrestles with from time to time. 
In fact, the struggle that takes place inside of a believer is active proof that the Spirit has taken up residence within you. Because, after all, if there is no circumcision of the heart, if the Spirit does not reside within you, then why should you struggle? The old man is in control if you are not reborn from above. But once you have given your will, you have surrendered your will to Hashem's Son, Yeshua, and the Spirit takes up residence within you, then the battle begins. So, let's talk about that which plagues us as believers. And all of us have weaknesses in our own special ways. In fact, when we allow our activities to put us into the kinds of situations that the Torah forbids, that is to say, when we use our temple in ways that are unethical, immoral, indecent, unjust, unloving, unkind, and just plain unscriptural, we defile this temple, as I mentioned earlier. Lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, fornication, deceiving, uh, gosh, the list goes on and on, backbiting, jealousy, quarreling, uh, lack of self-control, uh, uh, lack of moral fortitude. These are just some of the things that render our temple unusable to Hashem. And consequently, I might add, these are the things that will remove us from being holy unto Hashem. Ultimately, these are the types of things that will destroy us. I'm not saying that Hashem gives up on us when we fall back into these types of things. Rather, the relationship is broken between us and a holy God. God can't dwell among sin. And so, something needs to happen. How do we rededicate our temples? How do we perform Chenukah amongst ourselves? It should be noted that holiness is not something that we should just put on and off when it's convenient to us. It's not, it's not an article of clothing that we can slip in and out of. It's not a, a, a room that we can simply enter and exit from. Holiness is a state that we should be constantly existing in. Do you understand that? How do we do what Hashem expects us to do? We cannot walk out that which God asks of us if we are not walking in holiness to begin with. So how do we accomplish that? I've, I believe it's by faithfully trusting, there's that phrase again, in His power and in His word to work in and through our lives to produce a temple that is usable and dedicated. The Spirit of God is the one that does the work within us. We do what the Torah tells us to do. And we allow Hashem to make good on the promises that He's made to us. That as we are doing what the Torah tells us to do, He, the Father, is reshaping our thoughts and desires to conform to the image of His Holy Son. That's how it's done, people. It sounds easy, but it's not. Holiness is not just something that we sit around and, and, and dream about. It's more than a revelation. It's more than a, a, a feeling. Holiness is a call to action. What I've been discussing here is not some new and modern twist on religion. It is, in fact, the standard that Hashem has expected since the creation of man. We were created to be holy. We were created to fellowship with God. 
we in the 21st century are geared towards wanting the latest and the greatest, but, you know, quite frankly, sometimes the old wine is better. This year, as Chinooka takes place, take a moment to reflect on the reality of who you are in Messiah. Who are you in Jesus? Are you a sinner saved by grace? Or are you a saint? You know, you don't need to be some hyper-spiritual person to accomplish the task of holiness. That's the lie of the adversary. He's the one that would tell you, you're not good enough, Ariel. You can never be good enough for God. But you know what the Torah tells me? I don't have to listen to the lie of the adversary. I simply need to read the, read the pages of God's word. Here's what it tells me. It tells me, Ariel, that, 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 that I am a dedicated holy temple set apart from the ordinary, which is the world and its system, and set apart unto a life of praise and obedience to God Almighty. That's my reality. That's my identity in Messiah. And you know what? This is an identity of preeminence. Something the devil hates. Something my old flesh nature fights against. This is a position of honor, people. And the greatest reality is that this was all accomplished. Not, not, not because you or I deserve to be called holy. It's not something that we have done. Rather, we gain this position because the Father chose to demonstrate his intense love for us by sending his Son to become the means of attaining holiness in the first place. That's a good place to pause and say, Amen. Our holiness, in fact, finds its purpose and meaning in the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Yeshua. It's, it's His Spirit, His Ruach, which empowers us to live a life that's pleasing to Hashem. And, I may add, at the same time, gives us the boldness and the opportunity to share our testimony with those who do not yet know Yeshua personally. It's the power of the Spirit within us that causes this boldness to well up within us and share the good news. Holiness is not something we can manufacture on our own. It's not something that we as mere mortals should be attempting to perform. We must surrender to the Holy One. We must surrender to the Spirit of Messiah if we are to be holy and dedicated temples. My encouragement to you listening to this podcast and reading the commentary is that dedication and holiness should not strike you as uh, unattainable character traits that only the quote-unquote super spiritual should possess. This is not something for the only the pastors and the rabbis and the reverends and the bishops and the cardinals and the popes. No. This is for you and I, the common people. Holiness is for all of us who have named the name of Yeshua. God ordained that we should walk this way. Not simply confess that he is God and hope that he'll work something out. No. In fact, simply placing your trusting faithfulness in Yeshua and consequently allowing him to have control of your thoughts, your actions, and your emotions, and of course your will, will accomplish the purposes of Hashem. Let me read that again. Simply placing your trusting faithfulness in Yeshua and consequently allowing him to have control of your thoughts, your actions, your emotions, and your will 
accomplishes the purposes of Hashem. Holiness is something you can do, people. So at this point in time, you're asking me, Ariel, how can I walk in holiness? When does it start? Do I have to pray and press into God and wait for the right season? No, I don't think so. I'm not saying don't press in. (laughs) I am definitely saying press in. However, I believe that you can start today. If you've not been pursuing holiness, start today. You should pursue it, holiness, until the Messiah returns to take you unto himself. Pursue a righteous standard. Pursue God's... um, Pursue God's uh, empowering within you. Pursue God's light shining from you. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, as the book of Matthew tells us, in the Beatitudes there. After all, Chanukah is not just for the Jewish people. The term dedication is not a Jewish concept. Dedication is for all of God's children.